This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello, podcast listeners. I'm Connor and welcome to this bonus episode of Intelligence Squared. Today, we're featuring a debate from our partners at Intelligence Squared Germany. They recently staged the debate, We Must Stop Big Data's Pandemic Power Grab, in partnership with the European Council on Foreign Relations. It's a really fascinating debate and it saw Nanny Janssen Reventlau going up against Rowena Luck and the debate was chaired by Ulrike Franke. We hope you enjoy it and now let's go to the episode. Thanks so much, uh, Intelligence Square, for uh, organizing this event. It's a great pleasure to be with you this evening, mainly because it's such an important topic. I'm very much looking forward to the discussion, and we really have an all-star cast with us here today. The collection of data, for whatever reason, has really increased quite massively over the last few years, as has the production, if you like, um, of data. And While I personally don't really believe in this trope that data is the new oil, the fact that it is so often used and so often mentioned certainly shows the the importance of data. The discussion over whether big tech companies should be allowed to gather as much data as they do and how much access states should get is, is an important one and has become so much more important during this this pandemic. And therefore, we are here, as was said, to discuss the motion, we must stop big data's pandemic power grab. We have two really brilliant speakers to discuss this motion, one in favor and one against, that it is supposed to be. Nani Jensen-Revendlo is a human rights lawyer, and she argues for the motion. And Rowena Luke is a digital and global health executive, and she's going to argue against the motion. But I think we now actually have... The results, or at least some results, I don't think it's going to change a lot. Uh, I hope you can see this on your screens as well. So for the moment, the the results say that 59%, almost 60% agree that we should stop big data's pandemic power grab. Only 17% disagree, so that's not a lot. But 24% of people say, I don't quite know, I'm undecided. So, so Nani, Rowena, there are certainly, you know, at least seven people, 24, 24% of the audience to be won over. But you can also try and get those um, who, who disagree with your, your standpoint. But anyway, so now it is, it is time to hear from our speakers. You have heard enough from me. So we're going to have opening speeches, as I said. We're going to start with our first speaker speaking for the motion that we must stop big data's pandemic power up. We have Nana Janssen Reventlow. She's a human rights lawyer specialized in strategic litigation and freedom of expression. 
Anani has represented clients before the European Court of Human Rights, the UN Human Rights Committee, several African regional forums. She's also the founding director of the Digital Freedom Fund, which supports partners in Europe to advance digital rights through strategic litigation. And she's a lecturer at Columbia Law School, adjunct professor at Oxford University's Blavatnik School of Government, and an advisor to Harvard Cyber Law Clinic. So I don't think that there are many people in this world that are more qualified to, to make the point that she's going to make. So I'm really excited that you're with us, Nani, and I'm going to hand the floor over to you. Thank you so much, Ulrika, and thanks so much, everyone, for, for being here tonight. If there's one word that should stand out from the title of today's debate, I think it is the word power. And it is this power, along with profit, that lies at the heart of our conversations about data and technology, if we're talking about healthcare, education, or public safety. And the question that we should all be asking ourselves in these conversations is, who benefits from the power structures that govern this landscape? And today, as we discuss health measures in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic, the answer to that question is not the average citizen and certainly not those most marginalized by our societies. I will make three points to substantiate my position that we must stop big data's pandemic power grab and prevent the creation of a panopticon world that will disadvantage us all. First, I will make clear that a positive trade-off between our digital rights and our health is not a given. The benefit big data claims exists in return for us handing over our personal data simply has not been proven. Second, I will explain that we have insufficient guarantees on the safety of our data. When even seemingly innocent data points can wreak havoc on our lives, we need to know exactly what goes where and how safely it is kept. And third, I will argue that the data-based health solutions that are being pushed right now are prioritizing the health protection of, a health of an elite group only which means we need to ask ourselves the hard question, what it says about us as a society, if we are willing to almost exclusively focus on tech solutionist, capitalist responses to the pandemic, which not only hurt us all, but will only benefit a few. So first, a positive trade-off between our digital rights and our health is not a given. Protecting public health and safety is a compelling argument for policymakers, for regulators and for tech companies alike to advocate for the embracing of technological measures to fight something as big and unprecedented as the COVID-19 pandemic. And the solutions we are offered seem very simple. Download an app and help save not only your own health, but also that of others around you. This narrative is so compelling that we would almost forget to ask questions before handing over our data to companies and governments alike. But where is the proof that this data-driven technology is actually effective? Many have argued that the effectiveness of COVID apps is nearly impossible to evaluate. High download rates are not an indicator of effective use of an app. And even if they are used by the book, initial research shows that it's unlikely that an app alone, without further coordination with health services and policy efforts, will have a decisive effect on combating the pandemic. In fact, the successes in pushing back against COVID-19 in countries such as South Korea have been attributed to its previous experience with MERS. From the beginning, the country took COVID-19 seriously, ramped up testing, and as opposed to many countries in Europe and the US, there was a willingness to isolate, to avoid crowds, and to wear masks. And to the extent that tracing apps played a role, this was largely due to these complementing an existing surveillance infrastructure. So success is all but guaranteed, or at the very least, any successes we have seen cannot be definitively assigned to the use of big data solutions. Which brings me to my second point. 
namely that we have insufficient guarantees for the safety of the data that we are being asked to hand over. Data breaches are a common occurrence, resulting in data from users or customers to become freely available for anyone to exploit or to be sold to the highest bidder. Those who still use Facebook will not have missed the recent reports of a data breach there, resulting in birth dates, phone numbers, full names, user IDs, and locations of 533 million users from 106 countries being offered for sale. And this can happen with health data too. A study from last September showed that 85% of COVID-19 tracking apps leak data. Combine that with the knowledge that health information is amongst the most valuable data on the dark web, and we should all be very worried. And if it's not the app itself, the subsequent storage and treatment of the data should be of concern. In December, health data of some 300,000 people in Russia, collected via a social monitoring app that was designed to track people with COVID-19, ended up circulating via Telegram in the form of online spreadsheets. An often heard argument in conversations about data privacy versus the public interest is, but I have nothing to hide. We easily make such claims as we often lack the overview of what information we are actually sharing. And to the extent that we are aware, we think that they concern harmless bits of information. For the sake of brevity, I will sidestep the argument that privacy is a fundamental human right that is crucial in facilitating human progress and focus on the fact that even so-called innocent data points in and of themselves can provide information we may not want to be known to others. Fitness trapping apps have uh, given away the location of military bases and the movements and even home address of intelligence agents. And allegedly, anonymized data have been shown to easily lead to the re-identification of individuals, especially when combined with publicly available information. Furthermore, what may seem like innocent data in the hands of one party can be weaponized later in the hands of another. This has been the case in the offline context. I can reference an example from my home country here, the Netherlands, which diligently registered the religion of every citizen, which served as a perfect blueprint for the Nazis to deport the Jewish population when they occupied the country in World War II. And we are now seeing similar things happening in the digital context. In January, the government of Singapore announced that the police now has access to data collected by Singapore's COVID-19 contract tracing system for criminal investigations. This is contrary to the privacy policy that was outlined when the Trace Together app was launched just over a year ago, when officials said that data would be used solely for the purpose of contact tracing of persons possibly exposed to COVID-19, and clearly not what any app users consented to at the time. My third and final point is that we are prioritizing the health protection of an elite group only. The pandemic has laid bare much of the structural inequalities in our society, and over the course of the pandemic, frequent reports emerged on the disparate impact COVID-19 has had on, amongst others, women, racialized communities, the poor and the elderly, affecting many aspects of our lives, from access to schooling to the ability to access a vaccine. Our increased dependence on technology has brought sharply into focus that we are all but equal in facing the pandemic. And COVID tracing apps are an excellent illustration of how tech solutionist responses to the pandemic favor the privileged in our societies. Let's take the test and trace system for England and, England and Wales as an example, one of the earlier apps that was rolled out in Western Europe. To be able to download and use the app, you need to have a relatively new phone with the right operating system installed. 
That means that those who are unable to afford or don't have direct access to technology are excluded. Further, each user needs to be uniquely linked to a phone. If you share a mobile device with others, this distorts the tracing system. And of course, in order to download the app and receive warnings and notifications, you will have to be online. So you need to have a data plan or an internet subscription that allows you to use mobile internet whenever and wherever. To put it simply, the effectiveness of the app is based on an assumption that the so-called average person in society is the exclusive owner of a new smartphone with reliable access to the internet. Researchers at Oxford University have estimated that 60% of the population of a country would need to make use of a tracing app in order for it to be effective. And this raises the question, what happens to the less than half of the population that does not and cannot make use of the app? And how does the automation of disease control affect their vulnerability? And why are we so blindly focused on technological database alleged solutions at the near exclusion of non-digital alternatives if we know it does not benefit everyone in our society? The short answer to this is that the capitalism that spurs on big data's power grab only has the interests of the elite at heart. This is not the society that I want or anyone should want to live in. So yes, we must stop big data's pandemic power grab. Thank you so much, Nani, for these three very clear and succinct uh, points. I thought it was really interesting, if, I, if I'm allowed a comment, that, that your first point was about this this potential trade-off between health and, and data security or data rights, namely because when we planned this event, we had a discussion of what exactly the motion should be. And we had a motion that kind of had this trade-off in it and, and then thought, mm, maybe we shouldn't portray it in this way. So I, I, that, that rang quite, quite true with me. But I'm sure that Ravina is going to have similarly convincing and interesting and uh, yeah mainly convincing points i'm very much looking forward to to rovina who is now speaking against the motion rovina look is a digital and global health executive consultant and she also hosts her own podcast which is called eight evolved if you want to check that out from 2013 to 2020, Rovina served on the executive management team of the Magi, a Massachusetts-based social enterprise specialized in digital solution for societal impact or social impact. And the Magi is best known for its data collection platform, ComCare, deployed in COVID-19 response in more than 40 countries worldwide. I think now would be a good moment to say that Rovina is, of course, not speaking for the company, but in her personal capacity. And as Chief Service Officer, Rovina has overseen digital healthcare design, development and scaling for nonprofits and governments across Sub-Saharan Africa, Asia and the Americas. So she is clearly also perfectly placed to, to speak and against this motion. And I'm very much looking forward to your points, Rovina. The floor is yours. Thank you, Ulrike. To start off this conversation, I just, I just wanted to say, I get it. We're talking about data privacy. We're talking about our data. And I, I too have the same worries. You know, we have an Amazon Alexa at home and it's, it's figured out what my son, what kind of music my son likes to listen to. And for the past couple of weeks, it's been trying to convince him to buy an Amazon Prime subscription. He's three years old. That's creepy. I'm not comfortable with that. And I imagine many of you are not comfortable with that. And so I'm definitely sympathetic to the concerns and the reasons that we've gathered here today to discuss this topic. 
But let's look at the proposition as presented. We must stop big data's pandemic power grab. And other aspects of this proposition that I'd ask you to look at is first the question of big data. We're talking about those tools for harnessing and managing and using technology. We're not talking about big tech. We're not talking about other actors. We're talking about big data, that technology. And then the other piece I'd have to ask you to look at is the pandemic power grab. What, to the extent that we are using big data to combat the pandemic, should we be stopping that work or should we be accelerating it? To begin my arguments, the first question that I would like to ask all of you is who is the enemy? I would like you to pause and think for a second that the kind of people that are trying to use this data in order to combat the pandemic, these are health workers. These are doctors, epidemiologists, administrators, government officials, people who are putting their lives on the line so that you and I and our families can be healthy. And we're asking them to do extraordinary things, to move faster, to respond better, to invent things and innovate in ways that we've never had the urgency to move as quickly as we do right now. And so as we talk about the power of big data, and as we talk about how it's being used, let's think about that health worker and what, and what we can do to make their lives and the fight that they wage on our behalf easier. A little bit more about myself. Um, I've spent my life, my career, striving to improve health systems and also seeing how technology can do that. I've spent it in the international aid and humanitarian sector, working in sub-Saharan Africa, Asia, and the Americas for governments, nonprofits, and social enterprises. And so with the background that I have, I would like to bring to you the perspective on the health side as well as the technology side. So a few points I would like to make. First, big data is essential to public health. Data is essential to public health. There's an entire field of study called epidemiology, which is the study of data to enact effective healthcare systems. And big data today is an essential part of that kind of work. Let's rewind the clock. Let's look at December 2019 through March 2020. I think we all wish we'd gotten better information out of China if it was available about what the disease was, how fast it was spreading, how dangerous it was. And we know we could have responded better if we had that data. Big data is the kind of tools that lets us see how the disease is evolving, how it's spreading, who's getting it, where are they getting it. And if we don't have that kind of data, then we're flying blind. Healthcare workers need to make the incredibly hard trade-offs. We wish they didn't have to, but they have to make the hard trade-offs about where do we send the masks when we don't have enough supply? Where do we send the next batch of vaccines? Where do we instate the next lockdown? We want these decisions to be targeted. We want them to be effective, and we want them to be as limited as they need to be in order to be effective in our public health battle. And the only way that we're going to do that is if we unlock the doors to big data technology that will allow us to respond better. David Hyman, the executive director of the Communicable Diseases Cluster at the World Health Organization, wrote, By monitoring social media, news feeds, and airline ticketing systems, we can tell if there's something wrong that requires further exploration. All these things together are very important. 
or, sorry, there's two more last pieces uh, that I'll argue. One is big data has a track record of success in the battle that the entire world has been embroidered in the past year. Big data is responsible for detecting outbreaks of the viruses even before they happen. The first outbreak of the coronavirus outside of China was detected by a small company in Toronto that's run by a doctor, which used artificial intelligence to detect that first outbreak. The CEO of Pfizer attributes artificial intelligence and big data technology as one of the three assets that allowed them to get the first vaccine to market in record-breaking time and has allowed us to get on the trajectory that we're currently on. Big data allows us to put a sensor inside of the refrigerators, inside of the, inside of the cold boxes that we're using to deliver these vaccines on the trucks, on the bikes, on the motorcycles, on the dirt paths where they need to go so that we can fight this pandemic effectively. And we could not possibly manage that volume of data if we weren't able to rely on big data tools. There's an unprecedented opportunity that's arisen today an opportunity we'd hoped for with Ebola and with SARS before that, of countries collaborating and working together so that we can share the contours of this disease and how it's evolving and where it's mutating. And that possibility is coming to light right now. And we, we run the risk of extinguishing that possibility if we aren't careful. Big data is inevitable. It's already around us. It's, it's, in, it's a big into our way of living. And one way or another, the way that we use big data in the public health response is, is a key part of that response. The last argument I'll make is that data is a tool. Big data is power. And like any tool, it can be used for evil, and it can be used for good. We are in the battle of our lives against this pandemic. I know it's been a year. I know everyone's tired. We all want this to be over, but it's not. 10,000 people died yesterday of COVID-19. 130,000 people caught it in India. We can't let ourselves be complacent in the work that's ahead of us. We as a species, we need to be smarter. We need to be faster. We need to be more intelligent than this disease. And yes, we need to adhere to the laws and the regulation. We need to ensure privacy and confidentiality, legality, accountability to, all, to the citizens that rely on us in this battle. Yes, we need all those things. But this kind of data, particularly as it relates to the data that we need to fight the pandemic, particularly as it relates to health data, is a tool that we need in order to address the crisis that we find ourselves in, in order to win this battle. There's a, a question that's often posed, you know, when is this going to stop? When is it going to end? And what's interesting in that question is just to acknowledge the fact that COVID-19 is only one of the global disease outbreaks that's happened in the past 20 years. Professor Bayless from the University of Liverpool said, we dodged five bullets. The sixth one got us. He's talking about Ebola, SARS, MERS, avian flu, pandemics. And the nature of pandemics, it is one of the biggest threats that we face as a species. It's part of the climate change threat, and it's going to keep on coming. And there are mutations we don't know when it's going to end. And so as we build up the systems to fight COVID-19, we, we need to also be looking at how these systems prepare us 
for the next pandemic. We need to see how we can use those to empower health systems and governments to respond effectively to this crisis. In closing, I'll just say that the need, the need for more and not less data-based tools to track and tackle the COVID-19 virus and pandemic is essential. Thank you so much, Rowena, uh, for your intervention. And um, I was I was kind of waiting for you to mention this AI-enabled detection tool that indeed identified that new disease uh, that, that COVID-19 um, eventually became, I think, in December 2019, if I'm not mistaken. So really extremely early um, compared to, to everyone else. And, and that, you know, as you said, is indeed a, a good case, I guess. Maybe I'm gonna I'm gonna open up for for questions now. So so this is your time, audience, to ask your questions. Um, I'll try to read them out as they as they come in. But maybe I can start with with one of my own. And I think there are, in a way, to to both of you because, as Ravina just just showed, there is a very good case for the collection and and analyzing of data because it it really can help advance humankind, if you like. And I think um, health is especially good case and the pandemic certainly um, may has, have swayed a, a few people basically on that. But but one thing I'm, I'm wondering about is how can we ensure that any kind of exceptions when it comes to privacy, uh, data collection, etc., reach that, that companies or the state may have any kind of exceptions that we are creating because it is an emergency, because it is an pandemic, all of that. And I think, you know, we all worry about this. How can we make sure that these exceptions don't just stay on once, you know, the emergency is over? Because as Rina already alluded to, there's going to be a next pandemic and there will be very good cases to collect data, let's say, to fight climate change, all of that. So I'm basically wondering, is that something you worry about? Again, this is a question to both of you, whoever wants to respond first, but is this something you worry about that that basically whatever exception you put in place and once you open the door, it's going to be there forever and this is why we should be particularly wary. Or do you actually think, you know, we can take things back as well? Nani, you're laughing. Do you want to you wanna go first? Sure. I, I'm deeply concerned uh, about the fact that this is not going to be rolled back. For one, because like, you know, once you've opened P Pandora's box, it's very different, difficult to kind of like uh, close it again. And all that data that's going to be out there is not going to kind of like come back to its owners and uh, be retrieved. And which mm. is why I raised the issues about the concern about the security and also where in whose hands these data might end up. Because there might be a good justification for collecting certain amounts of data right now and kind of using it for certain purposes. And I do want to kind of make clear here that I want to distinguish between you uh, kind of like data informing health policy making and what we're talking about today, which, uh, which is a power grab from big data, which is, which I think are two fundamentally different things. This is one of the reasons why I think that the conversation about the how are we kind of like using data in this context? Are we talking about centralized or decentralized uh, storage of data? The what, like, are we operating on the basis of data minimization principles? Or are we actually using this basically as an excuse to get a lot more information that is not necessary, that's not essential to the task at hand? Because we're never going to get it back. We're not going to be able to turn back the clock. 
Thank you. Verena, how, how about you? Do you think that, that we're going to, because there there's a pandemic, a global pandemic that we're all suffering um, under, we're going to open doors that we can't close again? Is that something you worry about? Do you think we can close any kind of doors if we say, you know, we're going to collect this now, but not the next time and, and not after a while? Absolutely. And I'm a big believer in the importance of laws for data protection and the importance of international bodies. I believe we need, you know, particularly with health data and all the other data that we're talking about, we need to ensure the privacy and the, the different aspects, the confidentiality and the security of the data um, that's being produced. Um, and so to the extent that we can look at measures to limit the control of, of big tech, you know, to put in checks for big government. But what we're talking about here, the proposition in front of us is we must stop big data's pandemic power grab. And I think the risk in the way that we're having this debate right now is that we are confusing the tool with the entities themselves. Uh, big data has is, is a tool. You know, it, it's there's open source algorithms that are freely available to any university re researcher, any student in a garage who's trying to figure out the next thing, any activist, in order to analyze and work and understand important data sets and and work with them. So we need to be making sure that we allow that tool to be used to the maximum potential that it has for good. And to be able to, and while also limiting the potential for it to be used for evil. I'll ask two key questions for, for Nanny or for the audience, but like on this topic of, you know, we must stop big data's pandemic power grab. My first question is how do we stop it? And there are aspects of illegal behavior, and I certainly don't support illegal behavior. There are aspects of unethical behavior, which I certainly don't support, that we must look at. At the same time, we need to make sure that we're not cutting ourselves off from the ability to look at social media data, which is out there in the public anyways. We're not cutting governments off from the ability to look at health data that they need in order to plan, you know, how much, how many vaccines they're going to provide. We're not cutting ourselves off from the opportunity that exists in front of them. The second question that I'll ask is who stops them? To the extent that we're talking about big technology companies who are, are using our data for nefarious purposes, there are equal examples on the other side of that equation of governments passing laws in order to keep big tech in check. Um, and in those laws, giving themselves giving themselves extraordinary powers uh, beyond what in a democratic society we often attribute to government. If we look at the Indian government, uh, for example, um, there's lots of great things that the Indian government has done in order to strengthen its healthcare system. At the same time, earlier this year in March, it passed a new information technology rules, which gave it the right to, to require from technology companies that they report the first originator of key messages. And it also gave the onus on the big technology companies to moderate all of the content that appears on these streaming media platforms. On the one hand, this you could say that this is a measure to keep big tech in check. On the other hand, there is the risk that these kinds of measures can be used, as, as certain critics of that government have said, in order to, in order to enact the kind of privacy concerns in order to discriminate against minorities, um, even as we're discussing here. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, because whether you're thinking about challenges, big or small, let's not dress it up. Life can be pretty stressful, so it's healthy to have a place to discuss those thoughts and share what's on your mind. 
Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. We've heard from plenty of the biggest thinkers on psychology and wellness on this podcast, and it's clear that therapy doesn't always have to be solely about addressing some big scary trauma. It could just be a way to learn a few new coping skills and empower you to become the best version of yourself. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime with no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash intelligence today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash intelligence. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Nani, on, on public opinion and, and how to make sure that the, the public knows what they're signing up to or whether it's needed that they know if you know the policy is is, is good enough <laughs> i'm afraid i can't speak uh, to the to the german debate uh, unfortunately but but more generally just kind of coming back to like the pandemic as a specific context in which it is and it's particularly easy to spin a very l- alluring narrative in which the trade-off indeed is increased health increased security in exchange for for your data basically and i will just repeat <laughs> that um that's a cell that's being made on the basis of like very little concrete evidence at this stage that it's really, really making a difference. And you can have informed consent, which indeed is a requirement under the GDPR. But, you know, what are you, what are you consenting to exactly? What are you going to get in return? And I think that that is anything but clear. And this is where it is difficult, I think, for everyone to kind of like indeed ask these questions exactly because the narrative is so strong. It's like public health. It's the common interest. Like we, we all need to do our part. All you have to do is download an app, etc. So, and another thing that I, that I do have a, have a bit of an issue with, I understand the argument that there is certain information that is already out there, but we are talking about information that is publicly available through the fact that <laughs> surveillance capitalist companies have facilitated this information being out there. So it's a bit difficult for me to kind of like marry that with a narrative of kind of like using tech for good, if kind of like scraping information that people put out there, perhaps not knowing very well what they did at the time, that being being able to combine that with data that they perhaps voluntarily handed over you know, that creates very different types of data sets and very different levels of information about individuals than what they perhaps think that they signed up for when they, yeah, 
sign up for an app. Can I, can I just I was interject just ask, uh, two yeah. points that I thought <laughs> two points that I thought were important to pull out there. I think one is that there is a kind of data that our public health officials use to respond to the data. And separate from that, there is another kind of data set that we need to be extraordinarily careful about. And that's data that's used for marketing, that's used, the data that's used for profiteering, and that's the kind of data that we need to be careful of and we need to be looking as, you know, as a public discourse, as a public, we need to be looking that, we need to be critiquing that, we need to be pulling that apart. And so I think it's at, at that intersection when it moves from the pure public, pure health need into something more broader that we need to have an extraordinary amount of scrutiny and we need to move slowly and we need to do it carefully and we need to do it correctly. On this side, though, as we're talking about data that's used by public health experts who are looking at online media in order to see, hey, you know, where are the fevers coming? You know, where has the vaccine actually made it? Where has where have the results of the vaccines not worked? You know, in the examples that we're seeing right now around the world where the vaccines are, are, are faltering and there have been these implications, we need to know those adverse effects. And to the extent that we can allow public health officials to look at that data in order to gather that and work in that response, then we, then we cannot slow down that effort because these vaccines are being administered in the hundreds of thousands every single day. I'm not arguing, I'm not saying we should not introduce any new legislation. Obviously, legislation needs to keep up with the times and needs to keep up with the changing technology. But I will say that we run the risk in saying that, like, if we must, we must stop big data technology right, right now, uh, we run the risk of collapsing the very real good that we can do, the very real lives that we can save today against a long-term fear that we are not adequately protecting ourselves against. And so we need to be, we need to not slow down our work on the big data side. If anything, we need to invest more in that side in order to make sure that it's done effectively in the pandemic response work that we're doing. The other aspect that I'll say, and, and Nanny said this a few times, is about the effectiveness of these interventions as they exist. Speaking with my technology hat on, I'll say, I can see a few different things on that front. One is that technology is an amplifier of human intent, to quote Professor Kentaro Toyama. And what that means is that in the work that we do, technology can help us do it, do it better, and it can help us amplify how we achieve the goals that we've already set out to achieve. Let's take contact tracing as an example. Contact tracing is the premise that, you know, someone has a disease, you should find out who else that they've been in touch with, and you should reach out to those people, and you should have them isolate I don't think anyone here is arguing that contact tracing doesn't work. You know, it clearly does. WHO, CDC, like any health expert, like it, it works and it's the reason for the success that we've seen in a lot of the Asian community, Asian countries out there. Now, as we dig into the mechanics of how contact tracing works, on the one end of the spectrum, there is, you know, real-time, live, constant GPS location data. And that is, and that is, you know, not something that any Western, uh, any Western country has, has actually used. Um, and then further, further up on that spectrum, you have health workers who are using applications like Comcare from Demagi in order to take the phone calls that they're making in order to put it into a secure database that's searchable, that's transmittable, that follows these international health guidelines. If my, my concern with the, with the proposal as stated is that we want to make sure that these health workers you know, working in an environment where you're talking to people and you're saying, hey, like, you know, who did you, who did you, um, 
as someone with COVID-19, who did you come into contact with in the past two weeks that as they're working with that massive data set um, that they are able to use contact tracing apps in order to amplify the work that they're doing in order to manage this massive amount of data that they have effectively. Maybe the last, maybe the last thing I'll throw in here is one, is one quick quote again to this question of, you know, does, does technology work or not? I'm going to cite a Harvard Business Review case, which states, you know, we need to understand the risk of transmission at the hyperlocal level and the likelihood of adherence for specific geographies and subpopulations. In settings with limited individual health data, in settings that are the most marginalized, the most poor, have the least resources, we need to leverage available sources of data. For example, the artificial intelligence company MacroEyes uses satellite imagery, digital conversations, and publicly available data to predict with 76% accuracy which child will drop out of routine immunization programs. And that's a quote from Dr. Weintraub, Yadav, and Berkeley from Harvard, INSEAD, and Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance, respectively. Thank you. Nani, I'm sure you have many points you want to pick up on, but maybe I can invite you to do that while answering uh, one question we, we had which is about, I mean, basically the worst case scenario. So the question is, you know, take us a few years forward. What's the worst case scenario you envision of how the power grab could play out? Like what are the, the what's the role of the government? What's the role of corporates? What could other actors uh, be? And I think, you know, while outlining that, you may, you may be able to pick up on a few points. And Rowena, I'm going to warn you that I want to turn around that question in a second and kind of ask you about the best case scenario then. <laughs> Well, that actually kind of touched upon one of the things that I wanted to respond to about the idea that we shouldn't slow down now. If we indeed do not slow down now, we will have already kind of like passed a point of no return in which it will be very, very difficult slash impossible actually to turn back all the power that we've handed over to whoever owns the data. And I do think that it's really important to consider indeed like what is the impact of what we are doing now in the longer run. I sketched a situation in which we are actually working in a system that benefits a privileged part of our society, not everyone. If you want to use technology for good, I think it, it also means kind of taking a pause in how you roll it out and be more reflective of like how you want to do that, the way in which you do that, and also acknowledge the fact that tech solutionism is not going to save the day when it comes to this pandemic or to future ones. So... It's not the only answer. Uh, I'm, again, I'm, I'm not disagreeing with the idea that the data can be helpful to inform public health policy and uh, for scientific development. I'm not a health expert, so I, I can't even debate you on that if I wanted to. But um, and and I and I believe that. But what what I'm talking about is is kind of this you know this faith that we are being told to have in tech solutions for something that we need to kind of take a much more holistic approach to than we are able to do with technology. We are leaving enormous parts of our society behind in the way that we're doing things right now. And the way that I, that I look at the, at the doomsday scenario, if I can put it that way, is one in which we will have quickly passed, you know, emergency legislation, which will not be rolled back. We quickly handed over contracts to companies to develop all sorts of technology that's allegedly supposed to be helping us with fighting the pandemic. Our data will be disappearing in the hands of, of, of who knows what. 
and will just basically have uh, accelerated the surveillance state to a degree that otherwise we we um, would have been able to uh, influence had we taken a little bit more time. And we're leaving, again, like huge parts of our society behind in the process. We're amplifying societal inequalities because the technology, and this is why I kind of like liked <laughs> this idea of kind of like you can, uh, about like technology being a manifestation of our intention and so on. We're, we're replicating power structures, we're amplifying them, and we're doing so at extra rapid pace. Um, and it won't make us more prepared or uh, better equipped, I think, in the future to actually combat future pandemics. That requires a much more holistic approach, a much more thought out approach. We need to think about how we need to change the way we live, the way we work, the way we travel, uh, etc. It won't be solved through an app or a database. Thank you. And I think what you just said may have resonated quite a bit with at least one person in the audience who made a comment more than a question um, about this being of particular relevance in authoritarian states. Because, of course, you know, we're, we're all, I think, sitting in in, in uh, liberal Western open states or whatever you want to you want to call them, democratic states, um, uh, certainly. And so I think there are, there are also these concerns. But Ravina, um, before we come to the closing statements, what about the kind of best case scenario? What could be the, I mean, I don't want to call it utopian future because that sounds as if it's impossible to 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 um, to come about. But what would be the best case? What what can you imagine? At its core, what we're talking about here is beating the pandemic. You know, at, at its best case, we enter a society where we know we're smarter than this. We can act faster than this. We don't need to do the kind of extraneous measures that we've all had to put up with over the past year and a half. I fully agree with uh, what Nanny is saying, that technology alone is not the answer. Technology is is a tool. And when we talk about that best case scenario, I, I also want to say, like, I'm certainly not saying that technology alone is going to bring us to that place. That's why I'm emphasizing the role of the health workers. That's why I'm asking everyone to think about the people that are pushing so hard on this technology and why they're pushing on this technology and the lives that are at stake. And so again, the concern that I have is that if we make some cross-cutting law or case against big data itself, the tool, not big tech, not big government, then we're, then we're walking into this war zone blind. With the tools that we have, I, I think the great potential that exists is that you know, on the technology side, is that the technology today, it's certainly not perfect. <laughs> you know, I think we can all think of, of issues with technology and there's, there's ways that technology and big data technology needs to be better. And I hope in the future that we could, we could fix it. You know, like that's what we do with tools when they're broken. We fix them, we make them better. We don't just say, hey, I'm going to throw away my smartphone. I'm going to throw away my computer. Um, we're able to use that in order to advance our intelligence and our ability to respond to the pandemic in real time. And what that means is that if there is an outbreak somewhere, we don't need to shut down a whole country, which many countries do. We don't need to shut down schools. We don't need to shut down restaurants everywhere. We can say, hey, right there, you know, in that city, we know where the outbreak is happening. We can send some health officials there. They can deliver vaccines. We know the vaccines will get there effectively. We know that we can communicate with the people there. We can, we have the technology tools in order to share the information that we have and to include them. And then, you know, once we've delivered the vaccine, we can step back and the people who got it can have these intelligent chatbots that will keep them apprised of like what's happening and what's going to expect and what is the government doing. And so there's a lot that these technology tools can do also in order to open up 
that doc- dialogue. There's a lot that they can do to make sure that we are going after and addressing the most marginalized folks. Um, that, like, you know, that, I mean, there's, there's so much I could say about that piece, but I'll, I'll, I'll leave it as it is. Like, the, the, the technology works on, on, on both sides of that equation. And if we can use technology to address inequity, if we can use it to say, like, hey, this village in rural Congo, like, you know, we can see from geospatial imagery that, like, we haven't gotten there, we haven't addressed them, and they're going to get the pandemic next. If we can use that technology in order to, to move faster um, than this virus, then, then, that would be the dream for me. You know, we beat this pandemic, we can go back, you know, we go back to our lives as normal, and we're smarter and we're better prepared for all the other future future pandemics that will come to us as a species. Thank you. Go back to life as normal and be smarter and better prepared. I think that's something we can all agree on. Um, <laughs> but time is, is running out fast, I'm afraid, um, which means that we should come to closing statements and then... Uh, indeed, I would like to ask the audience again um, how they think about this now. And I'm sure, you know, for all of us, this is a thought process. Um, but yeah, maybe, you know, kind of final thoughts you want to share with us. Um, and I think we're going to start with Rowena because um, we started with Nani first. So, so Rowena, any kind of final uh, points you want to share with us and, and the, the takeaways that you want the audience to have? Absolutely. So a lot of the discussion that we've had today has come back to digital rights, and digital freedoms. Let's talk about freedoms. Let's talk about the possibilities out there. There's the freedom to hold your grandparents. You know, there's the freedom to send your kids to school. There's the freedom to have a job and earn a livelihood. And if, as we look at the way that health workers are fighting this particular disease at outbreak, we're looking at the social implications. We're looking at the way that it, it plays out and it spreads. The only way that we can effectively address this constantly changing, evolving beast is with the help of big data. It is a constant cost-benefit analysis. Like We need to know what's on the line and what's at stake. We need to balance the realities and the risks, the lives and the livelihoods. But if we don't allow ourselves to take advantage of big data technology, you know, that entire set of, of tools and attributes, if we don't invest the energy to fix those um, and to give our health workers the, the data that they need to do their job, then we're not going to be able to beat this pandemic. Thank you, Rowena. And thanks so much for, for all the points you made during this debate. Nani, your final thoughts and takeaways. Thanks so much. Lots of food for thoughts in this conversation. Thank you for that. So absolutely, we should be focused on beating the pandemic. I, I fully agree with uh, what Rowena said uh, on, on that front. But I do think that front and center should be that we want to beat the pandemic with humanity and in a way that respects digital rights. About a year ago, when we started lockdown uh, here, here in Europe, there were lots of newspaper reports saying that big data were going to save us, uh, largely uh, big uh, tech company executives saying that they were going to. And a year on, you know, we're in lockdown again. So I actually wonder, like, what is what is really the risk of slowing down just a little bit, asking the right questions and proceeding in a way that's uh, deliberate, that's uh, reflective, and that really ensures that, that no one is left behind. And in the solutions that we, we come with, which would be more durable for our societies, technology and big data might have a place. 
But I do not think that it's the place that big data right now is claiming that it should have. So for now, <laughs> I do think that the safest way forward is, is indeed to, to stop uh, the power grab that we were discussing today in order to make sure that we don't make any mistakes right now that we can't uh, turn back later. Thank you so much, Nani. And again, thank you also for, for your, your really interesting points. So now I want to turn back to the audience and hear from you through uh, the, the same polling question for and against the motion. To what extent this debate may have swayed your vote or yeah, whether, whether you kind of kept your, your original thought or indeed, and I think this happens quite often, whether you've become more undecided. So if we can bring up uh, the, the motion, um, Again, so once again, the motion is we must stop big data's pandemic power grab. And I hope I noted this correctly earlier, but I think the, the way it was earlier was that we had 59% that, that were in favor of the motion, 17 against and 24 undecided. Okay, the bars have stopped moving, so we're going to end it here. And the results are as follows. So we still have a, have a majority that agree with the motion that we should stop big data's pandemic power grabs, 57%. That's a little lower, though, almost exactly the same as, as before. 18% disagree with the motion, which is a, a slight, um, though relatively insignificant rise. And 25% still don't know or newly don't know. Now, of course, I don't know whether... These are exactly the same people who voted exactly the same way as they did before, or whether we've had some some changes. But I think overall, um, we have a, a winner, if you like, which is indeed the motion that we should stop big data's pandemic power grab. But I think this discussion really has shown us that that it is important to discuss these themes. It is really important to raise the right points. Um, I think, you know, no one here said we shouldn't collect any data or all the data. Um, I think the points were more nuanced and need to be more nuanced. Um, and I think it is the role of, of, you know, experts such as Rowena and Nani, who I would like to thank again for being here, but also the role of the public. So, so the audience out there to make sure that we are all informed and know what we're we're agreeing to or indeed disagreeing um, with. So, yeah, we've come to the end of this this truly interesting discussion. Um, I, I thought it was very insightful. There are very interesting uh, points that were made by our two speakers, Rowena Luck and uh, Nani Jensen Reventlow. Um, thank you so much for giving us this this hour of your life to, to make the point. And, of course, I want to uh, thank... ECFR, European Council on Foreign Relations and Intelligence Squared, which allowed us to be here tonight and, and allowed us to put on this, this discussion. So thank you so much. And thank you very much to the audience well, for, for uh, asking all these interesting questions. I'm sorry I couldn't get to all of them, but I'm sure the session, discussion will go on. So thank you and have a great evening if you are somewhere where it's already evening and a great day for everyone else. Thank you.